Gulf of Mexico. Welcome to the Space Cave. Let the waves wash over you and escape the madness of the hectic world below. And enjoy yourself out here in the depths of space, a cozy little cave. It sounds just like some waves lapping against the shore. Pull up a libation, join in a conversation. Let's try to stimulate our minds. This um, it was a very enjoyable chat. Thank you to Sheila Madrak for setting it up uh, as you're about to meet and engage with a PhD student who has one of those really great PhD programs where she is uh, going to travel all around the world and stuff. And we share some Mojave Red from Indian Wells, which is the final one of the, of the Indian Wells sample selection they sent over. Thanks again to them, everyone there. Fantastic little independent brewery if you can find some get your hands on it it's delicious and with that being said let's get to some chatting Rachel Chalk I'm going to open this Mojave Red from Indian Wells this is the final of the samples that they sent me I'm using I have all these things now that are part of the show this um, bottle opener is from Rebecca Oaks it's Lake Superior but it looks like a wolf I like it that's kind of fun um, so I guess I'll pour myself some and then you can pour your own or I can pour it for you or you can pour both. How do you prefer? Um, how about you pour yourself some and then I'll pour myself okay. some. <laughs> some of that sound is picking up. Great. All right. Here you go. Thank you. Sure. And you don't have to pour it near the microphone. <laughs> That's a new feature I've been doing recently to virtually no, um, response. So I can't imagine people clamoring, like, loving the, the sound of the beer being poured. Keep it up. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, I think it, it maybe adds to the ambiance. And you have a space heater next to you. Feel free to turn that off if it gets too warm. All right. It's very nice and toasty, even though the rain has sopped and it feels like a real L.A. day again. <laughs> yeah, it's sunny again. It, it got all the rain out of the way and then just right back to business. Right, right. Sunny again. <laughs> feels nice out. A little bit of like, um, what's that called? Evo transpiration? That's like my favorite word. I try to fit it in all the time. I don't think that's what it is, but I think that's when like moisture goes right back up and like different oh. than evaporation. Okay. I don't know. I think it's when it moves. Someone, hopefully. <laughs> Maybe a plant biologist can help us out with that. Yeah, some sort of a hydrology person. Right. Your background, as far as I understand it, and thank you to Sheila Madrak, Doc Mad, our mutual friend. Absolutely. And you met at a conference and she reached out and said, hey, you should have Rachel on. She's getting her PhD and she just said in small mammals. Yes. And then you just met my new dog and I was like, is does that qualify as a small mammal? No, I think that your dog is a pretty large mammal, a pretty oh, okay. sizable mammal. Yeah. He's like 50 pounds. <laughs> yeah. The small mammals I'm working with are smaller than your thumb and weigh less than two quarters together. So really what? small mammals. That's not even a mammal. What are we dealing with there? What, what's like a type of... I don't even know if I have a guess to offer. Smaller than my thumb, mm -hmm. but it has the characteristics of a mammal, which means it can lactate yes. in the female side. Right. It has fur or some sort exactly. of hair. Mm -hmm. And that's about it as far as... Oh, it's warm-blooded. Yeah. And it can eat... It can be like omnivorous. Are mammals mostly Not both? all mammals. These are granivorous, so they eat grains. Okay. Um, but they give birth to live young. They don't lay eggs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Those are the mammalian qualifications. Mm -hmm. They give birth their live young, and they're tiny. Does it feel like you're watching a house of miniatures or something? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, so these are these guys are pocket mice, and oh, so okay. they run around in the desert at night, and so they're also nocturnal. So to study them, we work all night in the desert 
with them and are looking for them. <laughs> so we trap them mostly because they're really hard to see. What do you trap them in? Little thimbles and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Just to put a tiny piece of cheese out on the ground. <laughs> no, we use these little box traps. So they walk in um, to get some seeds and then the door closes behind them. So they're just stuck in there. And, and then do, we walk around every couple of hours and check the traps. And Do you have to monitor them through like telescopes aimed directly at the traps? Or how do you know they're going in? Um, we put them in areas where we think they're living because of the burrows, because of the habitat that we normally find them in. Mm-hmm. And then um, you just walk up and if the trap's door is closed, you know that there's something in there. Oh. And so then you just pick it up and look at it. And so it could be a pocket mouse. It could be one of the other rodents that lives out there. Sometimes it could be a snake, which is not as pleasant, but more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, there's probably some nickname, that pe- like Pez for snakes or something like that. Yeah. Um, for the kangaroo rats, which are a little bit bigger, like softball size, mm-hmm. um, we call them like popcorn for the snakes and the coyotes. Like everything loves to eat a kangaroo rat. because <laughs> It's one big chimp. Like, like you can get a little mouthful there, whereas the pocket mice are so tiny that it's yeah. probably not really worth going after. But they do get eaten a lot. They do. Yeah. Birds? Yeah. Do birds eat them? Yeah. Because they're out at night, owls mostly mm-hmm. are the ones that are going after them. Um, snakes, coyotes foxes badgers skunks like do you ever see you know like in planet earth whenever you watch that you're like how are they getting this footage do you guys see nature at work like owls come down and capture these little things yeah so i haven't actually seen something eat one um which is good because usually like if i'm letting it out of the trap i try to make sure there's nothing there that can just eat it right away um but i have seen crazy things like we saw two owls um attacking a bobcat once which was Whoa, crazy what <laughs> yeah <laughs> we heard this like weird screaming noise and so we got out the spotlight that we have with us because this is again in the middle of the night and i was like oh my god it's a bobcat and then there were these two barn owls that were mobbing it and so the bobcat ended up like running up some rocks and hiding in there i need the scene set a little bit because yeah. i'm picturing like, a bobcat <laughs> in the open sort of cowering and covering its ears like hey come on cut it out (laughs) i mean that's sort of what was going on it was just there's the bobcat in the open the owls are dive bombing it and then it starts (laughs) to trot away and it goes and then it kind of runs up the slope and hides behind some rocks that takes a certain type of owl i would guess you know like when criminals get together at a divey roadside bar and go hey you want to go over and then you're like two criminals were apprehended (laughs) it seems like those owls being like i know it's gonna sound crazy but i know this bobcat that's always going along this trail Want to go mess with it? Yeah, I mean, I it was really weird. So the only thing that I could think of is that the bobcat had found the nest where the owls had chicks or something like that. Oh. So they were protecting it because mm-hmm. otherwise, I mean, a bobcat doesn't really pose much of a threat to an owl. So and nor does it on. seem like food for an owl. I mean, that's ambitious. No, yeah, it would definitely be way too big. Um, the owls also love to eat the kangaroo rats. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's after the. Did you start to like? This must be impossible. But I think sometimes if you're studying, depending on the size or if you're in like something that would be referred to as like a habit, you know, like a colony. Mm -hmm. Oh, we know all the lions in this pride. You probably don't get that level of familiarity with these little mice. You know, I did do this project where we went out and trapped every month for a year and we had every single individual marked so we knew like who they were where they lived where we had caught them before when they were having babies how many Um, are we talking about here every month how many would you get per month um we trapped three times a night for three nights which is a lot and so we would get the same animal multiple times but we were getting a couple hundred animals every month like a couple hundred unique individuals every month yeah it was a really massive project (laughs) and so some of them had ear tags so they had um, unique numbers on the ear tags and then mm-hmm. some of them had that where their ears are too small to tag they have like little color tattoos that we put on them basically someone has a little mouse tattoo gun yeah yeah I do like I had like the tiniest little needle and then put like color marks along the base of their tail that were also um, fluorescent and so if you get out a black light and you look at the animal then they like glow fluorescent so we would know <laughs> okay this one is like pink blue yellow and this one is like yellow blue Purple. So that's it, just dots. Yeah. You wouldn't like write phrases or draw smiley no. faces or anything. I mean, that would have been cool. I have a friend that worked with marmots that are like rodents, but a lot bigger. Yeah, love a marmot. Marmots are great, right? <laughs> and so they marked them with hair dye and they would actually do like smiley face marmot. And so they would have like a big smiley face on its back <laughs> or question mark marmot. How long um, would the hair dye last? Um, A few months, which was long enough to watch them for a season. I, there were these marmots. I'm sure I'm making up this memory. But like when I was in uh, 
It was in the south side of Reno, and it was this pile of rocks, which mm-hmm. I feel like marmots always are, like right. just when there's like shambly rocks. It feels like the, if I saw one and went like, oh, it looks like there's a design on that marmot. Right. There's no way you would believe it. You, right. You just think that your mind is playing tricks on you yeah, or something yeah. like that. Like looking at the clouds <laughs> and making up patterns. Yeah. yeah. But little did you know, like, no, there's some bored scientists. Right. And they drew. Wow, that's really weird. And yeah. the animals wouldn't know. Like if you no. drew like phallic things or the traditional like you're drunk and passed out things on a marmot they, right. they wouldn't care. I think one of the marmots ended up having like a pot leaf on its back I think it was maybe supposed to look like a maple leaf but then they called it pot marmot so. <laughs> <laughs> That's a like a lengthy sort of hair dye procedure I would guess Yeah and I think it's like the more marmots you get the more creative you have to get because you've already gone through like marmot one marmot two, yeah. marmot handprint and so now it's like <laughs> we've got we're on marmot 97 what are we gonna what are we gonna draw on its back <laughs> maybe that's how hieroglyphics and things were started just boredom like yeah draw i mean like you're a... trapped in the cave right like what else are you gonna do <laughs> <laughs> so the my so when you said like my dog is not a small mammal mm-hmm. where's the cutoff a marmot that would Ooh. be a small mammal right yeah i guess i normally think of like mm, yeah not all rodents are small mammals like there are capybaras which are what 30 pounds and they're rodents and i don't think that's a particularly small mammal yeah like nutria is another right one. right <clears throat> yeah when you said the box mice was that the first one uh the pocket mice pocket mice yeah. i was like i just assume they're all rodents they are yeah um so i don't know i mean i guess i think of small mammals as like if it fits in your hand, it's a small mammal, but that's definitely not. <laughs> oh, so there's a not scientific conclusion. <laughs> okay, good. I felt like there must have been some really strict threshold that you guys all know, but it's just kind of usually like a, when we're talking about mice, we're talking about small mammals. I mean, bats are small mammals too, but I don't think anyone that works with bats say they work with small mammals. I think they just say they work with bats. <laughs> so, so it's you, a nicer way of saying I work with mice, I guess. Yeah. Like, if you were at a conference though and talking about small mammals and. Someone came over and was like, hey, I'm working with... And they said something that was out of the... They wouldn't be laughed out of the room. I don't think anyone would mock them, but... <laughs> you hear what this guy said? They're like, oh, I work with small mammals. I work with lions. And you'd be like, eh. Get out! Yeah. Get the hell out of this conference! It's only small mammals. Right. <laughs> if there was a small mammal conference, maybe they would be they would be kicked out. <laughs> so you're getting your PhD at UCLA? I am, yeah. And what? why the focus on small mammals? Um, mostly because my advisor at UCLA works with small mammals. And so this is, so in ecology, you sort of choose a graduate school based on who you want to work with, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit more than like where, where the program is. And so I work with someone who is at the San Diego Zoo Institute for Conservation Research, and she does her work with endangered small mammals in Southern California and also does animal behavior and ecology. And I was like, these are all of the things that I want to do. So, yeah. So you knew you wanted to be kind of in... The animal behavior, is that a big mm-hmm. part of it or is it more the ecology side or both? It's both. Yeah. So it's like behavioral ecology. So it's looking at animal behavior, how they interact with each other, how they interact with the environment, and then also the conservation part of it, how we can use that to protect these endangered species. So <clears throat> this is an idea or a concept I just thought of. It's the first one that's breaking to my head. It's probably dumb, but like, you know, um, maybe more like an out of town road, like a country road that's paved. Mm-hmm. Things will burrow underneath it. Mm-hmm. And say you notice like that was extremely detrimental to their well-being because it caves in and they all die and then it's harmful to vehicles and the, and the vehicles then crash and they burn up things and it's just <laughs> terrible for the habitat. Yeah, that sounds awful. <laughs> but how could you, what would you implement to, to keep the animals from burrowing under there? I mean, is that, does that factor into the behavior? Is that a part of it? Yeah, Something like that? that's a big part of it. And roads are definitely a big part of how we're trying to use behavioral understanding to like sort of manage those circumstances. Um, So one of the things that people do is build culverts under roads, which is like a passageway for wildlife. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then you might put up some drift fencing, which means that if they walk, try to walk across the road, they would hit the fence and then it sort of guides them to that sort of passageway. So that would be a safe way for them to get under the road to the other side. So they're not killed on the road. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you're burrowing, in the road, I mean, maybe that would be a case where you would put gravel on the road or change the surface of the road or something oh, like that. Okay. Yeah. But Usually they're not getting into the asphalt. They're like getting under it. Okay. So there's very few things that you see where you like have to table together a group of people like, how can we get them to behave differently? 
but, I mean, but that's with part like of the it, elk yeah. or whatever, that, that is essentially what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, well, fences will make them behave differently. Right, right. Yeah. There's actually this species of parrot in New Zealand called the kia, which is one of the most, um, I guess, playful animals that's out there. And so they will drop things like a lot of birds will do this. They'll drop things in roads. So cars will go over it and like crack the nuts and then they'll fly down and pick up the nut. But these birds, I guess, were tacking like parked cars and they'll pull the windshield wipers off and they'll pull the mirrors <laughs> off. They just go nuts. And so they actually built jungle gyms for them at these parking lots to try to get them to play on the jungle gyms like in their actual bird jungle gyms instead of attacking the cars in the parking lot i just saw a documentary called bird brain and i'm positive now that that type of parrot is the one that is in it because not only there was one of them that they put on a ledge and they hang a piece of string with one of its favorite treats in it and the bird has never been presented with that and it just sits there for a while and then figures out how to grab the rope and pull it up to itself which is incredible. And then they made this like seesaw kind of thing. And if you, if a bird got on one side of it, it would lift up this cage that was on the other side and under the cage, all the other birds could go in and get treats. Oh, okay. But if that bird went, Hey, I want someone left. The cage would go back down. So they all started taking turns so that everyone gets some That's food. That's amazing. So you, you don't have that to work with, with most small mammals. They're, no, they're real dumb. They're definitely not that creative i would say (laughs) like do they eat their young and they do stuff that frustrates you like what are you doing no i mean yeah sometimes they eat their young but i feel like that can be an adaptive behavior like Mm -hmm. if that baby wasn't gonna survive then you eat it you get those nutrients back you have more babies in the future i don't think that's a horrible (laughs) thing i mean when you're thinking about rodents right i was just um, on a podcast recently talking with someone and she was like oh my dog's getting pretty old and my friends think i'm crazy but when she dies i kind of want to make her fur into like a pair of gloves or something and <laughs> everyone's i was like yeah i kind of wanted to do that with my previous dog like do a rug or something so he could still be around <laughs> it people think that's insane but isn't that kind of primitively in us that um, what you just mentioned is a mammal like a mammalian brain being like mammalian brain being like there's good food here i can't let it go i think if you're super food limited that makes more sense putting turning your dog into (laughs) gloves i think is maybe a little bit different than that (laughs) there's not really a survival aspect there unless Mm -hmm. it's you know really cold (laughs) (laughs) were you always into little like yeah you're shaking your head like little furry fuzzy things as a kid that was your thing oh yeah yeah. Did you have a hamster? I had a rabbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my sister had a guinea pig. Nice. And we really liked those guys. <laughs> Rabbits can be mean, but we had a few and they were pretty cool. Pretty pretty mellow. Yeah. This one I got when she was really, really little. And so I was obsessed with this rabbit. And so I just like was petting it all the time and holding it all the time. <laughs> so she was pretty well socialized. Awesome. Yeah. How, how long did you have her? I had her for, I think, 10 years. So pretty solid rabbit lifespan. What does a rabbit look like when it gets old? Um, She looked pretty much the same. And then just... Do their hops get... Yeah, I think she like couldn't jump up on things as well anymore. So put like, you know, she would jump on my bed. She just lived in my bedroom when I was a kid. And so we put stuff there. And so she could kind of like still get up onto the bed, but wasn't as sprightly as she (laughs) used to be. So they don't go the same, like dogs, you know, their temples divot in and they get like glaucoma and all these, they look very old. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe like, maybe she didn't get to be old enough to be that geriatric. This rabbit was kind of crazy because she was blind anyway. So her eyes were like milky looking. Um, And she was really, really good at navigating around the space where she was used to being. But I don't know, maybe when she got older, if we brought her somewhere new, it would be harder for her to get around. (laughs) So there wasn't, I guess I was looking for maybe some sort of a thread of, you know, a lot of times people get into a field like that. It's my rabbit died and I want to make sure (laughs) there was no sort of avenging of anything or it's just it was an interest in a love yeah and the small mammal stuff kind of came after the behavior and conservation thing Mm -hmm. and so it was like that was an opportunity for me to get involved in the behavior and conservation research in southern california through the small mammals and i had worked with them a little bit before i did before coming to ucla i did like six months in chile working with rodents there um degus which were really cool what's a degu it um it looks like a chinchilla they're pretty closely related to chinchillas and they live socially and they have like these communal burrows and they'll actually nurse each other's young in the burrow. And so that's one of the things in behavior. Everyone's like, why are they doing this? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like they would just trade off. Like, yeah. oh, Jimmy's over at your burrow. Send your kids over. Right. I'm not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> just lactate for them all. 
<laughs> That's nice. Yeah. It's like a village raising a child. Right, right. Yeah. So um, that was interesting, you know, and I didn't, I guess I wasn't like, I really enjoyed the Degus and I enjoyed watching them. They were also active during the day, which made it a little bit more civilized to be out there observing them, whereas these pocket mice being active in the middle of the night makes it a little bit harder. But how did you see into the burrows and stuff? We couldn't. Um, so the ones that they knew did that, they had them in captivity. Oh, I um, see. And so I had had this plan, like, oh, I'll get this little endoscope camera and put it into the burrow. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes funding gets in the way of these great ideas. <laughs> and so I ended up doing something different with the degus. yeah. So they're chinchilla size. The, mm-hmm. the whole the ground must be similar to what we see for like a gopher or yeah something like that. yeah exactly and then they have these runways so they would go between different burrow entrances or they would go out to the same area all the time so when you would walk out there it was like all of these little bare trails and then you would see them run along the same runway because they were picked off by out, oh. like birds and coyotes and stuff too. i think i've seen this on a documentary where they peek their head out and then scurry yeah that's fun. totally. It yeah. seems like a miserable existence. It would be pretty stressful. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> what do they eat? Like, why would their habitat, you know, if they do they deplete some of the resources there and then have to that'd be scary to pack up the whole gang? Like, all right, we're moving. Yeah. I mean, I think that they wouldn't usually they wouldn't all kind of move. I think that over time, maybe when the young ones were born and then they dispersed to a new area, they would get a little bit further away and a little bit further away. But these guys would eat like grass and stuff. And so that comes back every year. Um, And then they would go to different areas. And so maybe they would have to go further away when um, it was like the summer and it wasn't, there wasn't as much food around. When you're observing them, what I would want to see is how frequently someone set off to dig a new tunnel. Yeah. Is that a part of it? You know, I don't know if we saw that quite as much because I imagine most of it happens like they're expanding underground into a new tunnel because it's pretty dangerous to be at the surface digging down because you can't get very far. So if a fox is coming after you, you're not very well protected, (laughs) (laughs) which apparently people had seen before they saw one, like try to kind of dig down and then the foxes will actually dig them out and get them. That seems totally reasonable. I mean, if you have cool claws and you know like the... I'm not much of a sprinter. Here comes a fox. You just gotta just dig. Just dig. Dig for your life. <laughs> I, yeah, that must have been kind of frustrating. I, I'm picturing myself being there and like, I want to see the day to day. I want to see mm-hmm. the females sharing the young. And yeah. Like, yeah, do your thing. Oh, Barry's off digging as he does every day. Like, yeah. I wonder if they have different levels of like work ethic and then sort of genetic makeup of like, that one just kind of wanders around in the already designed tunnels. <laughs> this guy's always digging to nowhere, he brings in no food, but some of the hallways, pretty nice. Right. She's always digging, but she finds stuff, but she never digs. Yeah. On and on. I think that stuff would be fun to watch and to be above the surface and not be able to see it. Is it kind of frustrating? A little bit. I mean, so again, with those guys, we would trap them and then do some observations with them. So I was actually looking for personality in Degus, <laughs> which is a little bit like that, except um, trying to see if there were differences between individuals and how bold they were or how exploratory they were or how shy they were, <laughs> um, which is shockingly or maybe not shockingly it's a pretty big field in animal behavior right now um and so we did find some evidence of that but what we were trying to do is see if that was related to sort of the social structure that they were um that they had because they do share those burrows so it's like would bold ones share burrows with shy ones and would exploratory ones share burrows with other exploratory ones so you trap them you get them maybe in i'm picturing a cardboard box and then you show them a picture of something (laughs) and if they attack it you're like whoa this is an alpha people actually do that but with a mirror and so they see like the mirror image of themselves and if they're aggressive towards it they're a more aggressive individual Uh i would um watch them for 30 seconds observe what they did and then poke them with like the eraser end of a pencil and see how they responded (laughs) so did they turn around and attack it did they run away from it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah which doesn't sound that nice but they were not that upset about it so how what was the most common response like hey cut it out or like just looking what were you doing yeah so it was really like there were definitely differences some of them ran away and were definitely irritated by it and then some of them would turn around and attack it Mm -hmm. and then there was this one female who was super pregnant and we caught her every single day because i think she went in for the food and she was just this like giant tired fat (laughs) mama and so we would poke her and she had absolutely zero response she just like did not care (laughs) so yeah (laughs) just like whatever i already got the food i'm just trying to conserve my energy (laughs) when you see stuff like that i think this 
it's a constant with me, like this search for what has consciousness mm. and behaviors mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes plants behave in a certain way mm-hmm. where you're like, that seems... But I would imagine with animals like that, those sorts of behaviors, like she just seems like I would be. If right. I was really like totally. pregnant all the time, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, my life. <laughs> right. Do whatever. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Does it, I mean, do you talk about that with your group? And, and Oh, yeah. I mean, like in behavior, you do try to make sure that you don't have this bias that you're introducing when you're actually studying the behavior. And so to try to keep it like, pretty structured and systematic um but then when we're talking about it together like we have nicknames for animals and we joke about them and stuff so yeah and would science as a whole to think of it as this clinical thing of does does it have to go into it with a predetermined sort of these animals don't think they don't have personalities it's not tony from work like even though you go ah tony he's always doing that right they they're gonna have behaviors that would make you feel that way i would guess is is that part of science to say like remove yourself don't anthropomorphize them don't give them personality well the field of personality is actually pretty new because it used to sort of be like that like you know they're all the same and so what you can say for one individual is true of the whole population or the whole species but then when people started looking at personality i think there's still sort of a divide on whether that's really um, pertinent information, maybe, but looking and seeing if these, you know, different individual differences are actually influencing how good they are at surviving and reproducing and dispersing. I think it is really interesting because there definitely are differences between individual types, behavioral types, yeah, and sort of those like things that everyone is interested in in terms of survival and reproduction. Yeah, interesting. I mean, when you leave there, are you like the type to go wander off at night and look at the stars and really think about what it all means? Or do you have so much work in front of you when you're doing this? It's kind of singular in focus of just thinking about the work. Yeah, when we're out there, especially when it's really busy, it's like just focused on getting the work done. Um, The difference, though, is that being in really beautiful places, when you do have a downtime, when you do have breaks, like working in the desert at night, you see a lot of meteor showers, which is really cool. Yeah, cool. And so you get a little bit more time for that reflection. (laughs) Was that an appeal of the sciences? Because that comes up a lot when people are studying something where they've, I got to travel to this part of the world Mm -hmm. and we had to do this. And you're these are the to me the interesting characters in movies like they're always the one where dusting themselves off in this bizarre little cantina in the middle of nowhere hey i've been here for six months how are you in the movies they're always like walking quickly and they know everything right watch out for snakes keep an eye up you know like that seems so interesting that that's just their life was that a part of it like to yeah, see it all totally and i think that one of the big draws is sort of the adventure of it and doing field work and studying animals in the wild is really exciting because you are there every day and you're seeing them um and maybe you go out with a particular research question or goal or something that you're working on but then you just like see what's going on around mm. you and and learn so much more about them than just that one specific thing that you set out to do and also when you are out there every day in the same places you do figure out you know exactly what you said like there's the snake there's you know look out for this thing and so (laughs) I've had people come out to the field with me before and I was like okay I'm gonna take you to see this owl I'm gonna take you to see this snake I'm gonna take you to see this like cool (laughs) skeleton that we found five (laughs) weeks ago you know and so you can kind of like do the show and tell yeah and if any of the locals try to sell you copper don't buy it (laughs) (laughs) yeah that feels like the most worthwhile way to see the world, to really be involved in it. And, you know, people buy tours and packages to go mm-hmm. places and it's kind of like, go here, see this, take pictures right. and then you're done. But right. to immerse yourself and be in it and kind of know this is how the air feels at all different types of the day and maybe even through different seasons. Yeah. That's got to feel great. It does. And then you walk the same path that you've walked a hundred times. And when you see something different, it's really exciting. Or if you sort of like get to know the habits of the animals that are there, you're like, okay, if you go out at this time, you have a good chance of seeing this thing. Yeah. Like that's really cool. And so the guides usually on those tours have done that legwork, right? So they know where to take you. It's not yeah. just a random walk through a new forest. Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, there's a lot of time where you don't see anything. Um, and if you have a pretty limited amount of time, then <laughs> <laughs> like, great, I came out here and I didn't see, you know, I saw a bunch of trees, um, which is also wonderful. But if you're into wildlife, it's harder. It's harder to like get that experience in just a night. I'm just picturing someone leading a tour by at night and you guys all out there and them going, well, what are you, what are you doing? You're like, 
we're trapping mice that are the size of your thumb. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Why are you out here doing that? Yeah, no, we have had those interactions because we're working in areas where, um, you know, they're not too far away from civilization. So definitely yeah. running into people and they're like, what are you doing out here? <laughs> <You're> like, yeah. <laughs> I used to, I mean, I lived in the northern part of Nevada in the desert and I would, every. I mean, no, normally we had some ambition, whether it was to like ride our bikes or mm-hmm. go catch lizards. Yeah. And, but sometimes you're just standing there and whether you're talking with your friends and like you start to notice like maybe the ants crawling around or a jackrabbit the desert especially is way more alive it's just so stationary for 99 percent of the time yeah those little moments there's suddenly a lot happening bugs and things that are buzzing around maybe a snake over there you hear in the distance birds there's a lot going on Mm -hmm. and i i would imagine like when you guys are just focused on the small mammals just being just being there there's a lot of like man there's a lot of stuff here yeah no for sure and like i didn't really know the deserts that well before i started trapping the rodents and now i really appreciate them because there is so much out there um and being out there and being out there at night especially is when because it is so hot during the day a lot of the animals come up and are active at night Mm -hmm. and so that's when you get to see the really cool stuff um and yeah I've seen so many more snakes and lizards and frogs <laughs> that I ever thought I would see just because like I'm walking around all the time. Yeah. With this conference that you met um, Sheila mm-hmm. at, and I would imagine is, is the focus of the conference it, overall just ecology? So this was a wildlife meeting. So it's all people that are working with wildlife. Um, and it was the Western section of the Wildlife Society. So that's California, Nevada, Oregon, and maybe also Washington. Um, And so people that are doing research, people that are doing um, consulting, so like surveys for wildlife and stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, people that are working in government, so managing habitat for different species. Is it kind of a, uh, not that there's like a political tone to it, but it always comes down to funding Mm -hmm. and, you know, what's the most important? Is there a little bit of jockeying for position and elbowing, like a feeling of that of, hey, our, like say with Sheila, with a little bit more of an aquatic element or um her friend uh, Corey clatterbuck who was on the show mm-hmm. who's doing like seabirds right everyone when they are sort of singularly focused on it i would imagine would say this is the most dire situation yeah is there's it- there's a little bit of that um definitely people have their specialty and their focus and i think everyone understands that um at this particular meeting the focus was more on like well the federal government isn't going to be funding as much and the protections for some of these species, all of these species are sort of in question right now. So I think that when things like that happen, everyone's really on the same page because, you know, even if sea turtles aren't my thing, I certainly am in favor of studying them and yeah. protecting them. So, Well, like the monument, is it called Bear's Ear mm-hmm. the one in Utah? I yeah. mean, I would, there, there's no aquatic life there, but right. I would imagine everyone that hears that that's suddenly going to be pushed aside for like oil interests yeah it's very very like we're all on the same page right what can we do to save these animals totally yeah yeah and Is so like no you know having worked in a field where you see sort of what the impacts are of human disturbance either if it's you know aquatic or terrestrial i think that you can be you have a better sense maybe for what that is going to look like once they let that start happening mm-hmm. <sighs> i mean one thing I've really uh, dealing or talking, interacting with a number of people that are like involved in in ecology or just wildlife in general is like one. It seems like there's never been enough as far as resources go, both on the science side to study it and protect mm-hmm. these groups, and and this prevailing notion that like humanity's just going to keep churning. Yeah, and it's this helpless fight that you're there, kind of like there's a steamroller coming, and you're as quickly as you can like grabbing stuff out of the way. Right, and it's like focusing on this one pocket mouse species right <laughs> it's just like in in the grand scheme of things it's such a tiny thing to be working on but it's also sort of like if no one works on that then nothing is ever going to happen for them and that's pro- one of my favorite things about the human spirit or just humanity in general is like we have people among us not that we're all like that mm-hmm. but there are there's someone out there that goes i really care about right. the worms <laughs> yeah. i care about this one type of spider right right and i think that's great because if no one cares then you know we just steamroll it all but, yeah 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 and i'm I, it almost would be easier if that was all conditioned in us that we were this nonstop attacking killing force that was like oh the animals yeah we, we don't care about them but we have this empathy it's mm-hmm. in us even in like the most hardened sort of whether that's a 
congressperson or you know some sort of senator that's like well this briefcase full of money is right. worth a lot more to me than seeing wolves right. do what you want yeah well and i think that's why there's a big push to get young people out into nature because if you've experienced that then you sort of have a better sense for like why that's important to preserve even if there's not a clear monetary value attached to it yeah um and so getting people excited and interested um even if that's not their job or their career i think is super important i feel like deer maybe this is the most um entry level one whether it's through bambi or whatever but if you're in the wild there's a good chance above all other animals and I don't know if deer qualifies as chari- charismatic megafauna. Probably, Hello, Sheila. Probably they're close. <laughs> yeah, but like they were, the, they're the ones that if they feel they're at a safe distance, will stop, mm-hmm. just sort of look at you, do some blinks, move their right. ears around. And right. if you're a kid and you see that, it might not mean anything. But years later, you might think, well, it doesn't even know what's going on. It deserves to be out there doing its yeah, thing. Yeah, right. So yeah, I think what you just said is, is really interesting that like getting kids out there. And so is that a part of it when you're having these meetings? Like it's neat that we're all out there studying it and we know the behaviors and we know maybe how to protect them. Mm-hmm. But how do we essentially drum up compassion right. within the next generation? Yeah, no, that is a big part of it. Actually, the theme of this wildlife society meeting that we were just at, it was all about communicating science. And so not just getting people out to experience it, but communicating what you're doing and why it's important and why there should be funding for that is sort of the underlying <laughs> thing there, right? So even if people aren't the congressmen, they're on board with science. And and so I think that's also pretty key. Like, mm-hmm. So we appreciate these things. It's important to know more about them. And then it's also important to keep them around as long as we can and keep their like the habitat that they live in protected so that they can do whatever it is that they're doing even if we don't know all yeah. of what that is and isn't it, it the more you know about what they do it seems inconsequential and yet and i don't love preserves or places where they have animals i don't like zoos mm-hmm. but when you go and the rangers and everyone are really interested and when they give the tours mm-hmm. they maybe pick up the animal they have a group of kids and they say when she's this age she'll do this yeah and in the winter they do this right and and the kids go oh, what so yeah so knowing their behaviors is just by knowing them and that the fact that they're different than humans right that's part of it i think so yeah and then you know, you don't really know what's going to resonate with different people, but there are things that you can tell people that were like, that's so cool. And then they keep that with them. Yeah. You know, whether they remember the facts or not, like they're like, oh, I was really excited about this animal. <laughs> and that's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I don't know. It seems like it could be endless, but it, does it seem like a winnable thing? Oh, that's a that's a really tough question. I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends what we want to consider as having one. Yeah. I mean, clearly we're going to continue developing and human interests are going to be super important. But I do think that having the focus of continuing human development and making sure that there are resources for people, but also sort of keeping in mind, maybe we don't need to sprawl into these undisturbed habitats. Maybe we can, you know, change the way or have potentially higher density housing in this other area or figure out a farming strategy that doesn't include tons and tons of pesticides that have all of these effects on all of these different species. Like there are ways that we can compromise what we're doing as humans that can include sort of, you know, natural species as well um and so i think that's also really important not like stop all development because that's not going to happen if you were in charge of it though on (laughs) one hand you have this sort of dystopian future where the high rises go way up and they take up a small footprint and then so nature is left to be mainly alone Mm -hmm. but then that feeling that kind of american and specifically just human freedom particularly the west i mean there's a lot of that here of like open spaces and that's where nature is Mm -hmm. that's also where a lot of ranches and farms are which are almost the antithesis of what you're talking about so how do you merge those two together if you just have you know genetically engineered not modified but like animals and or meat or right every we synthetically create everything that could be weird i mean how would you go about it yeah i mean i don't know like so the synthetically created meat It is really weird, but then if you take a hard look at our farming practices here, it's not this idyllic family farm. You slaughter (laughs) what you need, right? So, like, is it weirder to eat synthetic meat or is it weirder to have these, like, huge stockyards and these massive slaughterhouses? I guess I would think that maybe the synthetic meat might be a better way to go if we can get over that, like, this isn't where food comes from sort of idea. Um, And so I I guess I think that 
keeping progress going, but then also trying to set aside enough space for some of these animals to just like remain. And so, yeah, ranching and farming isn't great, but it's still there are ways that you can do things that still have the habitat that those animals would be using. So like the blackbirds that are um, they'll build their nests like in tall grasses. And so a lot of times those are wheat fields now because there there aren't wild grasses now. It's being farmed. Um, And so working with farmers to just know the timing of the reproduction of the birds and then maybe cut their fields down a few weeks later after those baby birds have had a chance to leave the nest is not a huge difference or maybe necessarily a huge compromise but um, Mm -hmm. getting that information out there and working together towards this goal where it's like you can have your fields the birds can have their nests everyone wins (laughs) here I think can be good ways to kind of go forward with that I've always it just seems especially lately that farming gets equated with kind of the opposite of what it stands for in that like it's this money-driven industry where they'll stop at no cost to eliminate ecosystems or whatever to turn a profit but they are the ones that interact with nature the most they care about it healthy soil makes for Mm -hmm. healthier crops and it seems like I don't know I guess there'd be a million ways to look at maybe some people go I don't care about this stupid little lizard sure yeah yeah and I think there's also a difference between maybe smaller farms in those huge agricultural like monopolies yeah where certainly smaller farms you are still sort of like closer to the earth closer to the ecosystem and seeing those natural things happening but if you have just acres and acres and acres of one single crop um you're probably not going to have a lot of (laughs) nature left in there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel, because I've been on the side of that from a ranching side where they fenced off this huge amount of space and we couldn't take any of the cows in there. Mm -hmm. And they were, I think it was uh, a plant or something or some rare form of cactus that they were protecting. And a lot of the cowboys would be like, what in the, who cares? Like, you know, no one sees it, no one notices. And I would guess on your end as, we look at humanity becoming self-driving cars and drones mm-hmm. and very close to like, <laughs> I don't want to say teleportation, but like, <laughs> I mean, you can communicate with someone on the other side of the world totally. and see their face on a screen. Yeah. That was pretty foreign 10 or 15, right. 20 years ago. And so as we barrel toward this unbelievably dense, like technological future, it seems like it's a machine that's rolling. Mm-hmm. And then when you come out and go, but what about this little yeah. mouse? <laughs> this tiny little mouse. It seems like humanity as a whole goes, we've decided we don't care. Right. <laughs> so how do you stop that? How do you go like, it all matters. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, I guess the one side of things is like, we do have laws in place that protect endangered species. And so maintaining those laws is important. So even for the people that don't care, there sort of is that backstop there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do think that that is really critical because not everyone cares, right? Not everyone cares about fairy shrimp um, and and living in vernal pools. They're like, whatever. They come up every few years, like no one cares. It doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't benefit me. Um, But I think there are enough people that care that are willing to donate money and want to spend their time in a more natural setting. Um, Mm -hmm. So when they get time away from, you know, people are talking about like getting away from the screens because they have become so pervasive in our lives. And so we need to have a place for people to go and sort of still be humans and not just like little robots in this giant machine. Yeah. And it feels, I mean, part of me wonders if, some of our desire to keep everything with us is our also inability, like, because in our homes, we want to get rid of clutter. Right. And like, yep, some things are going to just, they're not meant for the long haul. Yeah. But with the planet, we feel personally responsible and we largely are. Right. But not entirely, I would guess. I think there have been species that have died off well before humans being here. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And there have definitely been other um you know, species that don't make it or, you know, when the asteroid hit and there were a bunch of things that died out or when the climate did change historically. But I think what's happening now and what studies have shown is that um, the number of species that would be going extinct without humans is just a tiny fraction of the number (laughs) that is going extinct because of human activity. Yeah. And so I think those are the ones that I feel more responsible about, like ones that you know, with this pocket mouse, we know that it's not around because it lives right along the coastline in Southern California. And those have been developed into homes and farms and stuff. And so there's not a lot of places left for it. Whereas if we hadn't been doing that, it probably would still be doing fine. When you hear of like them putting wolves back into Yellowstone Mm -hmm. or even, I remember there was a feeling that Buffalo were headed out. Mm -hmm. And then now you're like, they 
I, I, it's it's one of those weird things is as I'm an adult, I'm like, there are still buffalo. Right. Because I'd prepared myself for like, they're gone. Yeah. By the time I'm like 20 years old, there would be no buffalo. And now people have them in, and it must be hard as hell to farm because your fences have to be bigger. You know, to just and they have need them. a lot of space. Yeah, yeah, they're just heavy and huge, yeah. and they're not as like manageable as cattle. But right. they're around, so we yeah. we maybe notice on the bigger end mm-hmm. to go back to the the megafauna. Right. But yeah, these little mice, they do better. We better hope they just really reproduce a lot. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, there are there are definitely quite a few people like in the right positions that do care and are aware of it and so there is there is definitely push to like keep these species around nice but certainly the ones like the buffalo and the giant pandas and stuff these are things that a lot of people are familiar with and they're more iconic species and so the fish are probably like bluefin tuna maybe is that one or silver what's the silver tuna one there's one that's in dire that i read this article about like their these governing bodies are being bought out so therefore the fish levels are diminishing and people are like in an uproar of like this is outrageous but yeah and then they just go away and there's we don't see them right i think for tuna right like they're huge fishing industries built around that and so it's not just i care about this animal it's like i care about this entire industry um and so that becomes a little bit different because you don't want to stop people fishing them because then you take away their livelihood but you don't want to let people overfish them because you know in the future that livelihood is going to be gone Mm -hmm. and so finding that balance is really tough especially when they're in international waters and then you need a bunch of different governments to all agree (laughs) on the same thing so that one government doesn't just go in and like let them take all of the fish and everyone else who's yeah. like, we're trying to protect them, gets kind of screwed in that situation. <laughs> I was just picturing a bunch of far, of hunters coming out to your area, and you're like, guys, we're running low on these box mice. <laughs> or no, they're not. I keep saying pocket box, mice. Pocket mice. Yeah. <laughs> they have cheek pockets. They oh, store okay. their seeds in their pockets and <laughs> <on> their cheeks. <laughs> I'm just thinking of them. Like, but this is our livelihood. we got to hunt pocket right, mice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny little guns. Yeah. That'd be fun. How's this um, Mojave Red? I'm enjoying you? this. Yeah, I'm yeah. You said this. you didn't like things that are too hoppy. Yeah, I feel like this is nice, smooth. It's really mellow. Yeah, yeah. still like... got some good flavor though. Mm-hmm. I like it. All right. Well, maybe we'll um, refill a bit, take a little bit of a break, and get back to it. Sounds good. How delightful is Rachel Chuck? I hope you'll come back and listen to part two. We get a little bit more into the uh, ecology side of things, conservation things that I I think I delve into fairly frequently with these type of uh, conversations, but I hope I do it in a different enough way where there's new information and et cetera and different designs and, and ideas as to how to keep the planet spinning and keep it comfortable for everyone who's taking part of it, including our little animal pals. Being down, I was in Florida recently. They were talking about the sea turtles down there. And in the 70s, there were only like 70 known sort of nests where and the locals would come out and like sort of help them to keep an eye out look for the trails and then uh you know cover it up sometimes they put like metal or like mesh over them so that raccoons and coyotes can't get in there and now there are several hundred i think like 300 different nests that happen every year and they don't have any street lights down there they keep building levels to a certain height you can't go above so as not to saturate the the coastline with with light which makes it more difficult for the turtles and that was kind of uplifting that we have little things like that where people are living connected sort of to the ecosystem and sensitive to it and and helping it thrive so if you're looking for at least one little thing in the world where humans have done a little bit of good and helped a population increase a little bit well it's those damn sea turtles down there in the gulf of mexico on the Florida side. Okay, um, let's get out of here. Thanks for those of you uh, who support the uh, the show through Patreon, and thanks to anyone who rates or subscribes or shares the show or emails with a suggestion for beer or a guest or music or whatever. If you're a band just getting going and trying to get your sound out there, send it my way, pingsatthespacecave.com. If you know of some beer that we should share on the show, the same thing goes there or if you're an expert, so on and so forth. And uh, we'll try to share those things with all of you who listen. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier, those of you who do put the show, uh, or, you know, contribute to the show a little bit. It's put together um, with help from contributions, listeners just like you. So thanks again, and thanks to Dan. Let's get out of here with some music. Come back next week, part two, with Rachel Chalk. Here's some... uh, 
Wild Nothing with Disappear Always. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. <laughs>